Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from across the Living Faith Fellowship and LFBI. Every week we come together and we have these conversations about ministry leadership, theology, uh, and even about philosophy from time to time. During the post-9-11 recession in America, uh, we began to enter what could be described as a social, political, and spiritual identity crisis in our country. In 2011, in the midst of that transformation, Vishal Mangalvadi released a book called The Book That Made Your World, which provided historical and philosophical insight into how critical the Bible was to the establishing of the Western world's moral fabric, ingenuity, and creative productivity. Mangalvadi is an Indian philosopher and theologian, and he is an author and gospel-centered social reformer, and he is a lecturer as well. He travels all over the world uh, speaking with students and pastors uh, about the Bible and how it's impacted the entire world. So we are incredibly privileged to have him on the postscript and are looking forward to discussing the power and the authority of God's Word with him today. Vishal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's so wonderful that you have 500 or more students uh, listening to you every week. Yeah, the school has grown, and uh, we're very thankful for that. God's blessed us. But uh, I just want to say it's an incredible blessing to have you on the show. Uh, your book, The Book That Made Your World, had such a huge impact on my life when I read it uh, that uh, it's a real privilege, and it's very exciting for me to talk with you. Thank you. We are doing a third follow-up book on how the Bible created modern India. So I'm glad to be talking to you. Well, we can't wait for that to come out. And I know that you're constantly writing and you've got so much going on. Even today, I saw your itinerary and it's just packed. The whole week is packed. And so we're grateful for you fitting us in and, and having this conversation with us. Now, uh, on the show, Vishal, we, we often uh, you know have conversations with people and begin with them sharing their testimony. And, and uh, you have a deep interest in the correlation between biblical literacy and social transformation. And we'd love to hear first, before we get into that, about how God transformed your life. And maybe you can share with us your salvation story and, and how the Word of God impacted you. Thank you. Um, my first memory of choosing to sin and being stubborn about sinning was just around the time I was six years old. I stole some water chestnuts, ate them, and when confronted, I denied that I had stolen. I was punished, uh, and my father really exhorted me to speak the truth, and I insisted that I was speaking the truth. Uh, he was sort of old-fashioned. He wanted the truth, not my truth. Uh, but all his love, all his discipline, all his punishment exhortation, nothing helped. Lying and stealing became my habit. So by the time I was a teenager, just about 13, 14, I began to be concerned about my habit of lying because I would lie when there was nothing to be gained from it. I hadn't heard the word addiction. Uh, I knew, of course, that uh, many people are addicted to using curse word, swear word, dirty language, uh, they can't help. This is what uh, they are. Uh, but uh, I thought that I needed willpower. 
to stop lying. So mm-hmm. I would meditate and try and concentrate to increase my willpower. In the morning, I'll decide that today I'm not going to lie. In the evening, when I look back on the day, I've lied to my parents, to my siblings, to my friends, to my teachers, and especially to my enemies. Um, and I thought this was fun, but then I would feel guilty that why don't I have the willpower to control myself? So this struggle went on until someone explained to me that a lack of willpower is not your problem. <clears throat> you are a very stubborn person. Your problem is a disease. It's called sin. That has power over you. But there is a good news that a Savior came to deliver us from our sin. Uh, If you pray to him, if you ask him to come into your heart and set you free from this disease, uh, he will. So I asked Jesus to set me free from this habit of lying. Uh, He went ahead and delivered me from the habit of stealing as well. I was able to go back to the shops from where I had shoplifted small things uh, and repent and offer to pay make restitution. Uh, Everyone was very pleased. Nobody accepted the money, for which I was very grateful, uh, because I was still quite young, didn't have much money. Mm -hmm. But uh, that moral transformation was so real that I began to love Jesus and bear witness to him, being very enthusiastic about him. But when I came to the university, uh, started studying philosophy, this was in Allahabad in North India, I it became hard to believe that the Bible is God's word. And nobody was attacking the Bible in the university, but obviously my professors were more learned than my pastors. And professors didn't believe the Bible, and the philosophers that they were teaching didn't believe the Bible. So why should I? Why should I listen to my pastors when my learned professors don't believe the Bible? It was easy to doubt the Bible, The difficult question was, what then do you believe? And I decided to believe, uh, uh, I decided that I'm going to believe what the best philosophers and scientists think is true. So what do they know is the truth? So I began to review my entire course in philosophy. By now I was over 20, and I began to review Mm. my course in philosophy. And the more I reviewed, this time not to pass an examination, but to understand what do the best philosophers know is the truth. I found that all along, as my professors had been teaching me, they already knew that the philosophers knew that they don't know the truth and that they cannot know the truth by that time, this is 1969, uh, philosophers had already reached the truth, uh, to reach the point where they no longer believed uh, that human mind, human reason could know truth, or a human experience, the empirical experience of uh, our senses, eyes and ears and nose and t- taste and touch, mm-hmm. that our experience, uh, sensory experience, can lead us to a knowledge of truth. So. Truth was unknowable. So in the academic world, post-truth era had already begun, although the phrase post-truth took another 40 years before it hit uh, the popular Mm -hmm. world. And uh, the West became, as you said, the part of the identity crisis is uh, 
if human mind cannot know the truth, how can we hold these truths? These are self-evident truths that all men mm-hmm. are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These are not uh, truths uh, as far as the postmodern uh, USA is concerned. So right. roots and foundations have been cut, and that's the source of the identity, identity crisis that you referred to. I can't wait to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain about that, but you were, you were reading, I assume Sartre and, uh, you know, many of the philosophers, existentialists who were challenging truth, the post-structuralists. Yes. This is what you were confronted with, uh, when you were studying philosophy. Yes. But there had to have been a moment where you discovered that what they were saying was wrong, that there was an absolute truth and it was the word of God. When did that light bulb come on for you, and what did that look like? Actually, uh, by the time we came to existentialists such as Sartre and Kierkegaard uh, and Heidegger, etc., mm-hmm. uh, we, uh, I thought that Indian philosophers, sages such as the Buddha, Gautam Buddha, who was 600 years before Christ, he had already understood what Western philosophy understood only at the end of the 19th century, that mind or reason is not an instrument for knowing truth, that human language and words cannot communicate truth. Uh, they have nothing to do with truth. Um, mm-hmm. So um, the, I thought that the Buddha was right, that we are like five blind men trying to make sense of an elephant and one of us is holding the leg and saying elephant is like a pillar. The other one is saying, no, 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 you're a fool. I'm feeling the elephant. Elephant is like a wall because he's feeling the uh, stomach. And the third one says, no, 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 both of you are men. How can you know the truth? I'm holding the elephant. It's like a rope. She's holding the tail. So we fight amongst each other. Um, the, uh, each of us actually have the truth, but it is relative truth relative to our experience of the elephant. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so I thought that that means that none of us really knows the truth. None of us can know the truth because all of us are blind. Yeah, so Buddha, Buddha was ahead of the other philosophers is what you're saying. Yes, and well, uh, later, of course, I realized that um, Buddha had also destroyed Greek rationalism because when Alexander the Great came all the way to India, He had been trained by Aristotle to be a philosopher king, and he brought many philosophers with him. One of of them was Pyro of Elia, and Pyro of Elia encountered Buddhist philosophers. These were naked philosophers who lived out in the jungles, forest, and uh, Pyro spent at least 18 months uh, in what is now Pakistan, border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And uh, so Buddhism destroyed Greek rationalism. And Pyro was already skeptic that Plato and Aristotle, who put confidence in human reason, were wrong. Actually, reason cannot lead us to truth. And so, Hmm. but he returned from India to Greece to destroy Greek rationalism. That is when a Greek uh, Gnosticism, which is mysticism, much of it was related to Indian Tantra 
and yoga uh, began to take over the Greek mind. So by the time of Paul, uh, Greek rationalism, uh, although they are still talking philosophy everywhere in Greece, particularly in Athens, they are not really practicing because, as Paul observes, there are all sorts of mythologies and temples and idols and mystical experience. What he says that this is, they, uh, they believe in what is falsely called knowledge. It's a mystical mm. knowledge, which is not rational knowledge communicated in words or propositions. It's an experiential knowledge, which is altering consciousness, seeing that the consciousness as we have it, the rational consciousness, uh, which uh, the rationalists had trusted in Greece and then after Descartes in Europe, uh, all of this was hubris. This was arrogance. The human mind is not an instrument that can know truth. So, uh, so uh, uh, Europe had already given up uh, faith in reason and gone into mysticism, which was called Gnosticism. This is where you were at. I mean, you're you're kind of at a crossroads in terms of your understanding uh, of of what truth was. Um, what was it that broke through? Yeah, well, what happened was that uh, as I was struggling with this, I realized that. Uh, yes, five of us are trying to make, who are trying to understand it and are in fact blind. But could there be a sixth person who is not blind? Can he speak? Rationally, logically, it seemed to me that the concept of blindness presupposes sight. If there was nobody who could see, we wouldn't talk about blindness. So amoebas don't see and they don't talk about blindness uh, because all amoebas are blind. So <laughs> sight doesn't make any sense. But for the blindness to exist, sight has to exist. So is there a sixth person? Is there a God who knows? Has he spoken? That's when I said that, okay, my professors never honestly discussed this question of revelation. They began study of philosophy through rationalism with Descartes, but is there uh, a possibility of revelation? So uh, along with these were obviously questions of what is reason, where did it come from, what is logic, what is the origin of language, what is beauty, what is ethics, what is morality, and the philosophers are ignorant, they don't know any of this. So, mm -hmm. is there someone who knows, has he spoken? This is what led me, and I decided first that I will read the most ancient Hindu scriptures. So, I went to the uh, Gita Press Gorakhpur, which is like the Hindu Bible Society, to try and buy the, the Vedas, which are the most ancient uh, Indian uh, scriptures. Uh, and mm -hmm. they are called Shruti, that these are not made up, but they are heard. Shruti is heard. So they have revealed scriptures. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to buy a copy, and I was told that actually Vedas can't be translated and printed. I was trying to buy that in Hindi, which is my mother tongue, which we assumed at that time is India's national language. And it's certainly spoken by the majority, although officially it is not language. Uh, technically, it's not India's official language. It's the Majority language. So, but the Vedas are not translated. Why not? They can't be translated. 
because you have to sit at a guru's feet. You have to learn correct pronunciation, enunciation, intonation, and the rituals associated because the Vedas are magical powers. Now, now this is 50 years ago. Since then, of course, Vedas have been translated. Just yesterday, I was looking at Amazon.com. The complete Vedas from Sanskrit to English are available for $240 in nine volumes. Uh, Mm. It claims to be the complete Vedas, uh, though I doubt it very much. But (laughs) the interesting thing was that there are so many English-speaking Hindus in America they brag about the Vedas all the time, but on Amazon.com, the Vedas had three ratings, all giving five stars, not a single review. Not one educated Hindu had read the Vedas and reviewed them on Amazon.com. In contrast, the Quran had more than 1,300, 1,600 uh, re- reviews along with ratings, and the Bible has uh, tens of thousands. So, uh, disappointed that the Vedas are not available in my mother tongue, I, I said to the bookseller that, you know, he said to me that the Vedas are not written to give you knowledge of truth. They are given to give, is written to give you power, magical powers, occult powers. Mm. So I said it would be very nice to have some occult power, but at this moment I'm looking for truth. So if the Vedas are not written to give us the knowledge of truth, then I will look elsewhere. So I was in a Muslim town in Allahabad, which is now renamed, uh, but at that time it was still called Allahabad, the abode of Allah, a Persian name. So uh, I uh, went to a Muslim shop to buy a copy of the Quran. And 50 years ago, they said the Quran is not translated. It cannot be translated. You have to learn Arabic to memorize Quran. So I said, well, it will be very nice to know a foreign language, a classical language such as Arabic. But right now, I'm not interested in learning a language. I want to know the truth. If Quran is God's word, why is it not available in my language? Um, So... Uh, That's when actually my older sister uh, encouraged me to read the Bible. And I responded to her that I have read the Bible. It is childish stories. So she said, no, 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 no. You were a child when you read the Bible. Now you think you are a philosopher. Go back and read, read, reread and see if it makes sense. So that's when I began I was already already almost 21. I began rereading the Bible, and I found Genesis exciting. It was answering questions that philosophy had not answered, including the question of identity. Who am I? And then Exodus was interesting. Leviticus was boring. And then I found (laughs) some of the other books like Judges and all to be repulsive, morally repulsive. But by the time I came to Kings and Chronicles, I was thoroughly fed up that why am I, I'm an Indian. I don't know enough about Indian history. Why am I reading this Jewish history about these kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord and he killed them? Mm. What do, does that have to do with anything? Why should I be bothered about these kings uh, who did evil in the sight of the Lord and he killed them? 
So as I was ready to close the Bible once and for all, something struck me. Indian philosophy, Indian uh, schooling, education, is always praising ancient India, how good, glorious, wonderful Indian our forefathers were. But here is this Jewish book condemning Jewish kings as wicked, evil, that God hated them and punished them. Oh, so this is obviously not court history. Kings didn't pay historians to write about their fathers. Right. There was no bias is what you're saying. Well, I interpreted it as that this is religious bias. The book is written by religious leaders who hate politicians, and therefore they're criticizing the politicians. So I began rereading Kings and Chronicles, and I found that the book is actually condemning Jewish religion. Hmm. It is more anti-Semitic than anything Hitler could have written. (laughs) It is saying that God hated their religion, their religious observances, their temple, he destroyed it, killed the priests, sent them into slavery. So mm. I thought that actually, then in that case, this book must be subaltern history of the Jews, uh, that is written by the point of, from the point of view of common man, who is exploited by religion, oppressed by politics, and he hates both. So then mm. I began rereading for the third time Kings and Chronicles. And this is when I realized that this book is more anti-Semitic than anything Nazis could have written, because it is saying that ordinary Jews were liars, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, etc., etc. God hated them. He destroyed the nation. He sent them into slavery. So then I said, well, in that case, this book must be a work of prophets, because prophets love to hate everybody. (laughs) But, so, here I already know that these are very boring books, Kings and Chronicles. And within two months, I'm reading them maybe for the fifth or sixth time to just confirm that this is the point of view of the prophets. And I realize that the books are saying that the majority of the prophets were false prophets. Mm -hmm. And the good ones were the losers. They tried to save their nation. They couldn't save themselves. They were beaten, thrown into cisterns, killed, etc. So they couldn't save the nation. They couldn't save themselves. But their words turned out to be true. And on the basis of that truth, that nation was rebuilt, resurrected. So Mm. the books are claiming to be God's word. God's revelation. And this is where I have trouble with American uh, apologists uh, such as William Lane Craig, who see that Genesis is a mytho history. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. mystery. uh, It's mythology fused with some history. Is it mytho history or is it revelation? Uh, Is it God's word? So this was my struggle, which led to my intellectual conversion, which is reflected in the book that you referred to. That's a, that's a wonderful um, segue, I think, for us in terms of understanding uh, truth. So what you said was that when you realized 
that the prophetic words of Scripture actually came true. Yes. They weren't that these weren't just stories and that these just weren't they weren't political statements but words of declaration were being made and those words of declaration were manifesting themselves true over time because we have historical evidence suddenly something was unlocked for you and reali- you realized that this book was divine that's correct that uh, sin does not simply take souls into hell sin destroys nations Sin produces mm. curse upon, brings curse upon the land. Sin destroys relationship of husband and wife, marriage and family. And repentance brings healings. But repentance has to be turning from falsehood to truth. That human beings can know the truth if human language is in fact part of God's image in us. And God gave us the gift of language so that we could be his children in communion communion with him, uh, listening to him, and uh, reforming our mind, our thinking, our belief system, our worldview. So more we conform to his truth, more we are transformed and liberated. Amen. That's that's wonderful. Uh, You know, one of the things that you mentioned was that there's so many today that don't want to believe that God's word, that the Bible is genuine revelation. They want to conflate God's word with uh, mythology, and and they want to reduce the viability of uh, a creation uh, story. I'm curious, I want to know what your thoughts are on the issue of preservation, because there are so many ways in which the critical scholars today are working to undermine God's word, whether it be at the point of revelation and, and its original inspiration, uh, or or it is in its transcription, or it's you know from scribe to scribe, or or in its translation from language to language. And and so I'm curious about what your thoughts are on the issue of preservation, and why is that so important. Uh, for a young Vishal in 1969 uh, to to know that despite, you know, you, you mentioned the Quran wasn't translated, that the Veda was not translated. Uh, the reason were because they were obsessed with the, the, the power of the original manuscript and the original tongue, and they were unwilling to let it be translated. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the issue of preservation as it regards the surety that we have an infallible word in our languages? Well, to be honest, I am not uh, an expert on the questions that the critical scholars are raising about preservation. Uh, But if God is active in history, if he wants people to know the truth, uh, there is no reason to uh, suspect that he who preserves the cosmos cannot preserve his word. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Hi, my name is Chris Allred. Uh, My wife, Lindsay, and I are at Oakland Heights Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia, where we've been for about six years. We've served in a lot of different ministries, uh, but our main function has been to lead the middle school ministry for the past five years, up until this past August, where we've transitioned into leading our high school student ministry. Uh, We've been taking LFBI classes for a few years now, and and they've been a, a really really big blessing in our life. They've been instrumental in our training and our growth process. 
Proverbs 11 says that there's safety in the multitude of counselors. That's exactly what LFBI has been for us, a multitude of counselors. Uh, not only do we do we get some biblical knowledge and some doctrinal training, but we have pastors and missionaries teaching these classes uh, that have a lot of experience in ministry and are able to, to not just teach us from a book, but actually uh, pour some wisdom into our lives from their experience and, and help to, to prepare us and train us for leadership and make us into more godly leaders and ministers. And, and LFBI has been a huge blessing, and I believe it's done just that in my life uh, thus far. I've, I've got godly men helping me to become a godly man. And I'm very grateful for LFBI. It's been a huge blessing. Visit LFBI.org to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute. You're very knowledgeable of the history of philosophy. I mean, as you've already as you've already shown us, this is your this is a great passion for you. Uh, can you briefly tell us uh, how skepticism has evolved and how it's eroded the West's view of Scripture? You very pointedly address the issue of this erosion in the book that made your world. You, you you're kind of forming this narrative uh, of India and a narrative of America right next to or the West right next to one another simultaneously. And and you're pointing out uh, to the readers how America is in danger of throwing away the truth of God's word um, and all the benefit that comes with believing it. And so I want to ask you specifically about how skepticism as a philosophical movement uh, began to affect or erode the way that we see the Bible in America and and even in Christianity today. Well, thank you. Uh, That's an important question, but obviously a complicated question, because there is a good side to skepticism, uh, which the Bible produced. Mm. The a tremendous amount of research and investigation that this is what my professors are saying. Should I believe them because they have PhDs from Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge, or should I question them or doubt them? Could they be wrong? So Aristotle has said that if you drop two balls, same size but different weight, from a height, from a mountain cliff, uh, cliff, you drop them. Heavy ball will fall faster. If it is twice as heavy, so one is stone, say two kilos, the other is wood, one kilo, the two kilo ball will fall twice as fast. So Aristotle is 350 or so years before Christ. No one checks out whether his... Uh, conclusion is correct until Galileo, who climbs the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and then he repeats the experiment in many different places, uh, drops two cannonballs, uh, one heavier than the other. He finds both fall at the same time. So no one had questioned, doubted uh, Aristotle, because Aristotle was the father of Greek logic, uh, that, that is, he systematized. Greek logic. His uh, assertion seemed logical. Therefore, you believe it. Logic mm-hmm. leads to truth. He's logical. But if the actual observation contradicts what appears to be logical, could there be something wrong with the logic? Aristotle assumed 
that this velocity of the fall, the speed of the fall, depends on the mass of the object, the ball. But could it actually depend on the gravitational pull of the Earth? Both fall at the same time because both, if the volume is the same, both are experiencing same amount of gravitational pull of the Earth. This is what um, Galileo observes in reality. And then uh, Newton, Isaac Newton, when he has the proverbial apple falling uh, in Cambridge, he then intuitively comes to realize that why didn't the apple go up? Why did it come down? Well, it has to do with the gravitational energy, which we don't normally observe as we observe electricity or sound or wind force. We don't see, but we see the impact of gravity all the time. And this is what also probably explains why the solar system is held together uh, by the power of uh, gravity, etc. So mm -hmm. skepticism, doubting the logical conclusion of someone as great as Aristotle is a good thing. This is what, of course, David Hume does when he doubts the uh, logic of Descartes. Descartes argues that I can doubt that God exists. I can doubt that the universe exists. Maybe I'm dreaming. I doubt that you exist. Maybe I'm, I'm hallucinating. But I can't doubt that I exist because that would be self-contradictory that I doubt that I exist. Uh, what mm -hmm. is self-contradictory is illogical. If logic is connected to truth, then what is illogical cannot be true. And uh, he concludes, I think, therefore I am. I doubt, therefore I exist. Mm. But Hume points out that, no, 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 wait a minute. A robot, and I'm putting contemporary illustration, a robot can think, it can translate one language into 100 languages, it can give you a million recipes, it can solve your complex mathematical problems in seconds, it can play chess with you and beat you in chess. It thinks, does it therefore exist as a soul, as a person? So what Descartes is proven is thinking exists. He has not proven that the thinking soul, thinking person exists. Mm -hmm. So logic mm -hmm. cannot lead us to truth because logic is uh, presupposes a number of things. So to say that Socrates, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Wait a minute. Tomorrow, Socrates might discover the nectar of life and become immortal. You don't know what happened to Enoch. You don't know what happened to Elijah. You haven't observed all men die. So how can you, the first uh, premise that all men are mortal is a assumption, which is an unproven assumption. You're building a conclusion on an assumption which you cannot prove because there is no way that anybody has known all men uh, die. So 
so logic is inherently incapable of knowing truth. So once uh, Hume uh, demonstrates that, Hume says that, okay, we cannot believe in logic because in order to believe in logic, we have to believe in the pre-existence of Logos, that human mind has the image of the Logos. Therefore, the mind functions logically and logic can be trusted. But the implication then is that, no, we cannot, we don't know if Logos exists. Therefore, mm -hmm. we don't know what is logic and where it comes from and what is language and where the propositions come from. What we do know is that information comes to us through our senses. We see, we hear, we touch, we sm smell, we taste through our sensory experience. This is Hume calls empiricism. Our empirical experience mm -hmm. gives us the data which the brain organizes into what we call knowledge. So knowledge of truth comes through our senses, but that creates the problem, Mr. Descartes, that I'm not able to see your soul. I can taste your soul. I can, I can touch your hands and your face, but I can't actually touch your soul. So if you're saying that you think, therefore, your soul exists, uh, I can't see your soul. And as a matter of fact, I can't see my own soul. That soul exists, that I as a person exists more than the brain chemistry. This mm -hmm. neither logic nor empirical experience can lead me to that certainty that a human person exists. So, this is really the birth of skepticism in modern Western philosophy. This is what, of course, Pyro had already. Uh, begun. He, he was already in skeptic when he came to India with Alexander. He went back, not as a skeptic, but as a to total pessimist, that human beings cannot know the truth. Truth cannot be mm. known. This is what created the post-truth Greece. India was already post-truth, that human beings cannot know the truth. We have to kill our mind. So meditation or yoga was technique of killing the mind, silencing thoughts and questions to alter consciousness, to ex have a mystical experience, which was believed to be true. Mm. But, but it was experience in silence. So it's an experience that cannot be communicated in words because words don't enter that realm of transcendence, unless mm. there is a transcendent God who is a person and he speaks, and he makes me in his image to be his child, uh, to with whom he can communicate, to whom he can reveal his word, to whom he can write a letter. So if communication from God isn't there, then the possibility of truth disappears. Uh, and this is where skepticism uh, come since. So your question was, where did skepticism begin? And I would say that in modern Western philosophy, it really begins with David Hume. There were others, but he is the most prominent. And incidentally, Hume's skepticism came from Buddhism.
when I was a student, our university never told this to us, that uh, Hume was Scottish Protestant background, mm-hmm. but he came to France, and in France, in a Jesuit seminary, he discovered what w- was probably the first European book on Buddhism. There was a Jesuit brother who went to up in the Himalayas, lived in a Buddhist community to communicate the gospel to them and to learn Hindu Buddhism from them. So he wrote uh, um, Christian tracts for them and he wrote the first book on Buddhism. He brought it to France with him. The abbot of that monastery did not give him the permission to publish it. Therefore, he left the manuscript and went wandering. That's when Hume went to um, the monastery in France and uh, someone who had been reading this book on Buddhism, a manuscript on Buddhism, explained Buddhism to Hume and because uh, nobody had heard about Buddhism at that time in Europe. Therefore, Hume uses Buddhist arguments without actually Wild. crediting Buddhism. Uh, and that's where skepticism comes in. So then that skepticism, obviously, you know, in America, uh, from the middle of the last century, uh, as postmodernism came to prominence and in, in took the form of cultural movements such as the free love movement, uh, and, you know, forms of feminism and things like that. Obviously, there's been a huge change. There's been a, an alteration in, in terms of the way that we think and the way that we question our, our reality and, and whether or not truth can exist. And so how do you see that affecting America? I know that you, you talk about it a lot in terms of the character of Kurt Cobain. He becomes kind of this continuous part of your storyline, and you use him as an example. I, I grew up on Kurt Cobain. You know, I was in middle school when uh, when his albums were coming out, and and I dressed like him, and and he had a lot of influence in terms of the way that I saw the world, even though I couldn't articulate those things. And so, that was one of the things about your book that that captured me right away is that you were you were using Nirvana as a as an illustration. But tell us about that a little bit. Give us some insight into how you see those those maybe quasi Eastern philosophies, quasi you know, uh, Western skepticism impacting our, our world that we live in in the West. Thank you. Uh, 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 that's very interesting because last night at 10 o'clock, my wife and I were walking and praying and we ran into our neighbor and my wife said oh, that this Nancy grew up uh, next door oh. to Kurt Cobain uh, in Seattle. So, so she said that she is very interested in my book. My wife, my wife had talked to her that I've written about Kurt Cobain. And um, so we talked a bit and gave her that book. Uh, and so uh, Kurt Cobain, uh, the musical legend, a genius as a magi- musician, uh, who committed suicide, he... Uh, uh, had become a Buddhist. So his band, Nirvana, that is the Buddhist word for salvation. Nirvana means salvation in Buddha, Buddhist thought. Mm-hmm. Instead of eternal life, salvation is eternal death. 
cessation of existence. Because existence is an illusion. You don't exist. This mm-hmm. is what the Buddha is saying, right. that you have to cease to exist. So my chapter that you are alluding to in the book, uh, this book, the book that made your world, that's the first chapter. I use music as an entry point into the soul of the West. The chapter is called From Bach to Cobain. Both were musical geniuses. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, a Lutheran musician who is the one of the foundations of modern European music, which came to America. Uh, uh, the similarity between the two of them is uh, not just that they were musical geniuses, but that they both lost their parent at the age of nine. Bach's parents died, Cobain's parents divorced. Now, Bach was able to celebrate suffering. His great works are the passion of St. Matthews, the passion of St. John. The passion means the suffering, the crucifixion, the suffering of Jesus. Now, he's able to celebrate suffering because of resurrection, which gives Mm. hope that Jesus, who died, that was not the end. He continued to live. He resurrected. He lives forever. So, yes, there is suffering. There is discord. There is trial. But in the end, there is resolution. There is eternal life. There is peace. There is harmony. Mm-hmm. There is abundant life that Jesus gives. Now, Amen. In Buddha, the Buddha, um, um, in, uh, I, my family from my father's side actually comes from the same ethnic group as the Buddha. Oh. Uh, so Buddha was a prince. He was protected by his family from going out and observing suffering. This is 600 years before Christ. There are no medicines. Uh, every little thing becomes a major problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, people die young, there's mortality, there's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, there's a lot of uh, starvation and hunger and famine as agriculture is dependent on monsoon, which keeps failing uh, pretty often. So as he goes out, he sneaks out and observes old age, infirmity, sickness, death, he realizes life is suffering. He makes that his first noble truth. So he has four noble truths. The first of them is life is suffering. Which means life without suffering is not possible. Therefore, salvation includes getting rid of life, cessation of life. Cessation Mm. of existence becomes nirvana. Now, The Bible has an opposite worldview that God created Adam and Eve and he put them in a garden, Eden, where there is no suffering. Actually, the only suffering there was was that it was not good for Adam to be alone. The bliss was incomplete without Eve. Mm -hmm. So God makes Eve for the garden to be complete 
for Adam's bliss to be complete. Uh, yeah. And marriage is good. Family is good. This is very good. But in order to find his nirvana, the Buddha renounces his wife and his son. And he walks away from his wife and son. Um, this becomes typical of Hindus, Hinduism and Buddhism. Anybody who wants salvation in Hinduism and Buddhism, first thing he has to do is to renounce his wife and family. He takes sannyas. He is to take brahmacharya. Sexual energy is not to build family. Sexual energy becomes a means of becoming God, Brahma. So uh, he renounces his mm. wife. Later, of course, he indulges a lot in sex, as you can see in the uh, novel Siddharth or the movie uh, Siddharth. You know, uh, Harman Hesse's uh, novel. So he, he tries a lot of indulgence in sex, sexuality. So Siddhartha, uh, the Buddha, he spends time in indulgence. He spends time in total asceticism, abstaining completely from food and uh, sex, etc., water. But then he chooses the middle path. So uh, this is what you see in Cobain that this loss of identity that yes he's he suffered he's lost his parents his mother began to have other relationships and his father remarried and then it was more important to please his new wives than to please kurt cobain uh his son and so he was practically an orphan and that a loss of anchor in family and do I really exist as a person? Is my soul real? Can I find uh, a permanent relationship of love and identity as God's son, God's child? Am I loved? Am I accepted? So his uh, amazing musical success, professional success, economic success, sexual relationships, then he gets addicted to drugs uh, uh, and um, goes through uh, rehabs many times. None of that actually is able to deal with the question of philosophical nihilism that I don't exist. Death alone is real. So he's singing a lot about death in many of his lyrics and finally in shoots himself and kills himself. So while Bach uh, finds resolution to the problem of suffering, uh, Buddha finds no, res no uh, solution uh, to the problem of suffering, uh, that this suffering is caused by sin. Suffering is not essential. Mm -hmm. Suffering is real. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but I have overcome the world. Because mm. the root of the suffering is sin, and that Jesus takes upon the cross and is dies upon the cross. So uh, one can be delivered from sin and have an eternal relationship with God as my Father. So that inner security of salvation, the, you talked about the preservation of the Word of God, preservation of the soul in uh, saving relationship with my father. This is what 
this is eternal life. This is abundant life, which helps Bach find resolution to the problem of suffering, which Cobain never finds. And this is the problem of nihilism versus in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. Mm-hmm. And in his took, in his flesh, he took my sin and my suffering and my death upon himself to give me eternal life. That's the gospel. And uh, I, I go into some of that philosophy in that chapter one uh, in that book. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And it, and it kind of brings us full circle in terms of this idea, this concept of loss of identity, which is what we see, uh, you know, kind of eroding the fabric of the West. Um, and, and Cobain is a great example of what that looks like when it takes full root. And it leads me to, to want to ask you this question about uh, deconstruction and, and in particular Christian deconstruction, uh, this kind of recent phenomenon over the last decade or so where, where Christians are beginning to fall prey to um, these, these skeptical ideas and they are losing their identity that was once sourced in the Bible. But now because of uh, critical text theories and because of this, this maybe, maybe addiction, use that word earlier, addiction to loss of identity, uh, philosophically, culturally, this, the ambiguity that we have found in terms of identity in America. Tell us about Christian deconstruction, what you think about it, and, and how you anticipate that really harming uh, the faith. Well, the, the fundamental questions there again are worldview. If what is language? Language is a, is it a uh, God-given means of constructing our view of reality? Uh, and our views can be wrong. So any scientific theory is a construction, so is a philosophical theory, a psychological theory. Uh, Deconstructing many of those theories is essential for all kinds of intellectual progress. So a Newtonian worldview has to be deconstructed, but also then an Einsteinian worldview has to be deconstructed uh, and uh, in search of a unified theory of everything uh, which is true. And nobody Mm -hmm. has reached there, and it appears that nobody can really reach there uh, because simply because we are finite, there's limit to what we can comprehend, what we can understand. So uh, questioning Uh, what we are taught and re-examining. But the idea that because we are finite automatically presupposes infinity. We are finite Mm. only in contrast to infinity. Mm -hmm. So is there someone who is infinite? Is there someone who is eternal? Is there a logos, 
if there is a word who spoke, then uh, we have to a basis for uh, believing that the language can in fact lead us to truth. Mm -hmm. I know him, he knows me, that's a relationship, but because he he's infinite, I have to press on towards knowing him, and my passion is to know him more and to grow in my knowledge of him more. And when a child says, I know my mother loves me, does he know the truth or is he a bigoted fundamentalist? Well, obviously, he doesn't know everything about his mother. But can he know a truth and build his life upon it? That mm. the, when the father says, okay, you are up there on the tree, jump down, I will hold you. Can he believe his father mm. and know that his father is capable of uh, catching him and holding him and he can risk jumping from the branch? Um, so do you, can you know your father enough? Can you know your mother enough to trust them, uh, mm -hmm. even if your knowledge is not exhaustive? That's really good. Vishal, um, I, I'm so thankful for the insight. I feel like we could do this all day long. Um, the conversation that we've had has been very beneficial in terms of um, understanding both the dilemma that we face as the church in the West, but then also just the encouragement that you've provided us in terms of knowing that our identity is in Jesus Christ and that we can trust the truth that we have uh, is so wonderful. And so I, I want to thank you for the time that you've spent with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we want to thank our listeners for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. Um, if this kind of dialogue interests you, uh, we want to highly recommend our classes in LFBI that deal with theology and philosophy and biblical worldview. There are several classes that we offer. In fact, uh, we are offering a class this semester um, coming up on uh, world religion and cults. And so uh, if this kind of philosophical conversation interests you at all, we want to invite you to be a participant in that class in this fall semester. But we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for Vishal for joining us. Uh, God bless you, and we can't wait to see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.